Have you ever dreamed of going to Hollywood and making it big? Well, these are the stories of people who have made it, just in a different way. They're the unsung heroes behind the screens that make movies and television come to life. Welcome to the Right Scuff Podcast, where we talk about films and interview those who are just starting their careers to some of the biggest names in production and post-production. Our mission is to inspire you through the true stories of people who have achieved their dreams. We'll be talking to Foley artists, screenwriters, sound editors, picture editors, the list goes on. And for film fans, we'll be focusing on sound and what it takes to create Foley. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm a writer. And I'm John, a professional Foley artist in the film business for over 40 years. He's worked on over 500 films and is a 37-time nominated and 9-time MPSD winner for big titles such as Inception, The Matrix, and The Dark Knight. You can find us online at therightscuff.com and please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Welcome to another episode of The Right Scuff and of course uh, Sarah's next to me and who's sitting in the chair of honor is Hal Gibbons. And Hal I've known for at least two weeks <laughs> and uh, really excited to have him here because he has done many things besides being a sound editor, supervising sound editor, and in fact has created an entire post-production facility back east. But anyway, we're going to just say good morning to him. Good morning, John. Good morning, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, we're going we're gonna to do a little history first, then we'll let it go total free form, whatever you want. Uh, if you could just kind of tell us how did you get to where you are today? I mean, what, what started it all? I mean, did you wake up one morning and go, I want to be in film? Um, almost. I was uh, going to school. I was in university in Lafayette, Louisiana, at the University of Southwest Louisiana, studying marine biology. And um, the school had just let out for the summer, um, and I'd gotten a summer job with a taxi company. <laughs> um, I went and got my hack license, and I was going to drive a cab in Lafayette, which is that's mainly taking old ladies to the supermarket. And I remember the job <laughs> was uh, 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. for one-third of the meter. In other words, you got one-third of whatever you collected, and you sat in the cab for 12 hours a day. And I was supposed to begin the next day at 5 a.m. And, um, I mean, I must have been like 19 years old and about 145 pounds. And they were going to give me this taxi to drive. I, I had interviewed with the, with the cab company. They gave me a job, told me to come back at 5 a.m. And I, I went to this sandwich shop after. And I bumped into a, a fellow, a guy I recognized, a friend of a friend. I said, what are you up to? And he said, well, they're shooting this movie in this park out uh, side of town. I'm going to go check it out. And I said, well, that seems interesting. Um, can I come along? <laughs> and uh, I did. And they were going to, they were, the movie was called Belazare the Cajun. It was a film that had been developed at Robert Redford's Sundance uh, Laboratory. This is long before the Sundance Festival as we know it today. Um, anyways, this little independent film was being shot and they were going to start shooting the next day. And I started talking to the set construction supervisor. And he was telling me they were behind. They had to get all this stuff built. They needed help. And I said, well, I'm a pretty good carpenter. I mean, I can build things. And he said, do you have tools? And I said, well, yeah, I do. And he said, well, I can't pay you anything, but if you can bring your tools, come here tomorrow, and I'll put you to work. And I had to make a decision. <laughs> do I do the cab company, <laughs> or do I start this movie thing for free? Well, I I never called the cab company back. I don't think they missed me. <laughs> I think they had a pretty high turnover. Uh, and I started as a carpenter, for fr as an intern, volunteer carpenter on this uh, film. And wh what year was that, would you say? 1920. <laughs> no, it would have been like 84, 85, 85 I wow. think. Um, okay, so I start as a carpenter. I'm working uh, for free. Uh, as an intern, and um, the post, or not, not the post, the UPM, the, li the line producer, the production manager, was a woman from L.A. 
whose yeah. name you'll think of in a second. No, I just hesitated. Her initials were Sandra Schulberg. And Sandra was, I, I think she's still around. I mean, I've, uh, I, sh- I hope she hears this and laughs. Um, well, my roommate was beginning to complain because I wasn't paying my rent and paying the bills because I was interning on this important movie. So one day I went to Sandra and I said, um, Sandra, this after I'd been there a few weeks. I, I, I said, uh, is there any way you can pay me anything? And she said, absolutely not. You knew what the deal was when you started. You you made your agreement. Um, we've had a lot of problems with interns thinking they should be paid. Forget it. And I made a decision then that I was going to work so hard they had to pay me. And as luck would have it, they'd built it. was a cow. It was a Western, more or less, a Cajun Western film. They'd built a set way out in the swamp at a place called Pecan Island, south of Lake Charles in the middle of nowhere. They'd built this corral this uh, for this cattle roundup scene, and they'd, they'd finished it, and, they'd, and they needed someone to strike the set. I heard some people talking, like, uh, oh, someone's got to drive all the way down there and clean up that set. And I said, well, I'll do it. And the production vehicle was the director's Dodge van. I jumped in the director's van, and I drove down there. <laughs> And it was the worst. It was pouring rain, and there were huge mosquitoes. And again, I'm just this skinny kid in the mud, and I'm swinging this sl- by myself in the swamp, swinging this sledgehammer, busting up this set, and I pulled all the nails out of all the boards and put them in a can and stacked up the lumber. And um, anyway, I, I, I did it. And a week later... Uh, the big producer, the main producer, some people were standing around saying, and the, I heard this producer say, yeah, someone's got to go deal with that thing down at Pecan Island. And someone else said, well, no, that's been done. That's been taken care of. And he said, well, who did that? And they said, Howell did it. And I heard him say, I want that guy on payroll. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's yes. Fan- that's fantastic. And I think they were paying me like 150 bucks a week. But I was getting paid, and my roommate was happy because I could pay my rent and do all this. <laughs> Okay, so time goes on. I continue working, building sets, doing this. Now I'm getting paid. And um, they had uh, set up a little screening room in Lafayette in a basically a warehouse to screen dailies. And they had a projector there, and the editor was there. And I started, um, every night the crew, we'd all go to dailies and watch, and I'd hang out there. And one night after dailies, I, st- I was talking to the film editor, a guy named Steve Brown, uh, from New York, and he said, are you interested in this? And I thought, well, yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, and I, I'd been reading a little bit about film. I knew a little, I'd been reading some books. I was kind of interested in film. He said, well, are you interested in this? And I said, yes, I am. And I, he said, well, there's a, we have a place in our budget for an apprentice, you know, if you're interested. So I went back to Sandra Schulberg. <laughs> I said, hey, Sandra, I was talking to you know Steve last night at Dailies, and he said they have this you know place in the budget for an apprentice. If you, absolutely not. <laughs> she said that position's been filled. Um, this girl from New Orleans is going to do that. Just you know that's not going to happen. And, and and as an aside, she said something to me that bothered me then, and I and I've tried to be careful to never say. It. She asked me, "Is this what you really want to do?" Do you really want to do editing? And, you know, I was 19. I thought, oh, you know, it's, <laughs> right. it's inside. It's right. air conditioned. Uh, right. Unlike the mosquitoes. <laughs> Unlike the, the mosquitoes in the swamp. I don't know. You know. And, I, and I still feel today that's an unfair question to ask a young person. You know, is this what you really want to do? You know, this seems you. you I, when I, yeah, I agree with that. You, know? you experiment. Try it. Maybe you like it. Maybe you think, you know, who knows? And that should continue. So. She says, is this what you really want to do? And I said, well, uh, and I guess I wasn't. But she just said, forget about it. It's not going to happen. Well, as luck would have it, the woman they had hired backed out or couldn't do it. And so I got that job. Wow. So now I'm the apprentice in the editing room. And that was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, there was this editor, Steve Brown, who used a, uh, a Steenbeck. He cut on a flatbed. And when it arrived in the crate, um, because I had some mechanical skills, uh, 
it had broken. The prism had like fallen or dislodged in shipping. Anyway, I fixed his steam bag, which that kind of got me the job. And because I'd been the carpenter, I remember them telling me, okay, you can be the apprentice, but you have to build your own bench. <laughs> and he explained to me what a trim bin was. John, remember trim bins where the strips of film would hang? Oh, boy, do I ever. And he kind of described this thing to me. And so I had to build these trim bins and sew the bags out of cloth. I had to get like make these things. I had to make all my own equipment. Anyway, so I was in the editing room, and um, the assistant editor was a woman named Joby Oshner from New Orleans, um, whose father and grandfather were very famous surgeons there. And she was wonderful, and she would come to work with a daiquiri in one hand and a cigarette in the other. And, wow. and me, this skinny kid, and this guy from New York. Um, so anyway, so we go to editing, and we edit. And then as, as the post, the final post of sound and music and all, mixing was all going to be done in New York. That was the plan. And so as it wound down, and, well, the film wrapped, and I stick around for and, you know, it... it the, the the discussions were all about well who's going to New York, <laughs> you know who's going to New York. So, third time I go to Sandra. <laughs> hey Sandra, I was talking to Steve, <laughs> and I was wondering if maybe you know I could go I could go to New York. Absolutely not. <laughs> You're uh. not going. There's no money. Forget about it. It isn't going to happen. You know. Well, by this time, I'd learned, like, when she said that, I said, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the editor um, was let go. He got Not exactly got fired. I think it was a thing where he he threatened. He said, if you don't do this, I'll quit. And they accepted. And so oh anyway, so the and Joby, the wonderful assistant, um, she had fallen in love with the first assistant cameraman. <laughs> who was from L.A., and so she had no interest in going to New York. She wanted to go come out here to be with uh, this guy, and so I was. I remember, John, um, I wasn't really sure I was going until the producer, not Sandra, but the, the, the executive producer came to me and asked me, how, how much of the footage have you seen? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> and I said... Uh, Ninety percent, and I go. And at that point, I knew I had a job. So I loaded all the film into the van, and I drove the film up to New York and met uh, the sound crew. And that was kind of my introduction to sound. They, they they hired a new picture editor, who wasn't that interested. He had his own crew, and I was kind of you know brought along with the project. So yeah, that that's the basic story that I started it, you know, it started with walking into this sandwich shop and bumping into a guy to becoming a carpenter to becoming a, an apprentice and the assistant. And then, um, you know, then once I was in New York, well, I was kind of on my way. Now, when you're in New York, do you remember the name of the facility you dubbed at? Was it C5? Oh, C5? <laughs> no, there wasn't even, no, no, no. It was, uh, to all the New York listeners, it was Trans Audio. On 54th Street, Steve Brown, the editor, who had given me my first break, really, right. who had um, said, you know, we have a place for The Apprentice. So when I got to New York, um, he was a great he was a great person, and he was a great uh, to give me a chance. Um, and I, and th and then when I got to New York, he was taking me around. <laughs> To all these clubs, I was going to Palladium and hanging out with these really interesting East Village um, artists. And uh, there was a, this was the like, I guess mid '80s New York East Village scene. Would that be War Warhol then? Back then, <sighs> almost. I mean, edgier. I mean, Warhol was kind of like the sellout. This would be like mm. Jim Jarmusch and David Wanarovitz wow. and Ann Magnuson and this kind of crowd. Wow. And I'd never seen, you know, and I was, again, I was just this kid. I mean, I was, I think I turned 20 in New York. My, 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 and my apartment was uh, I, uh, down in the village. And, and then once I got to New York, I met, um, and I'll just tell you how I got to L.A. Was I met uh, the, the, the sound editor for that film was a, a guy named Sandy Gendler. I don't know if you've worked with Sandy. He, 
Oh yeah, we yeah. Sandy. We did uh, Independence Day. That's right with Val. Things, with Val, right? Sandy and Val. But uh, yeah, okay. So you met well, Sandy. Well, Sandy was the sound supervisor on this film, and so they kind of again the picture editor kind of had his own crew. I'd been with the film from the beginning. They didn't know it, so they kind of stuck me with the sound crew. And so and and actually, I worked with the music editor. I think his name was Patrick Mullins, and. Um, so I hung out with the sound crew. We'd go bowling and things like that. And then uh, Sandy and I were talking about coming out here because eventually anyone who wants to do this, you have to be in Hollywood. And, you know, you have to go to L.A. And he knew a guy who knew a guy or something at Cannon. So you decided you got, had to get on a train, so to speak, and get out to Los Angeles. Well, yeah. Well, Sandy and I were talking. Yeah. And if you wanted to be, if you wanted to do this work, if you were serious about this work, you had to come to Hollywood. And... Sandy had some connection at Cannon, um, and so we jumped in his VW Beetle and drove out. Sandy Gendler and I drove to California, and um, <laughs> I rem- and I can always remember the first time I set foot on California's uh, soil. We had spent the last night in the road in, on the road in Arizona. We stayed just across the border in Arizona the last night, and we got up to make the final run to L.A., and uh, we checked out of our little motel we were in. This is like 86 or so, or I can tell you, or you can, uh, we drove across, we went through the agricultural checkpoint thing, pulled into this place to eat breakfast, and everyone was glued to the television because the space shuttle had just blown up. Oh, the Challenger. The Challenger, and... So I can always date my time. and I mean, literally, as we were crossing the border, that happened. Um, we came out here, and as luck would have it, they, again, uh, they happened to need someone at, at Cannon. They had an opening, and uh, so Sandy got this job on some Charles Bronson Cannon movie, and it was a perfect... I, I was never at their office... On Sunset, this is when they'd moved down to San Vicente and Wilshire in Beverly Hills. Um, I, and by the way, a documentary has been made about that. I don't know if you've seen it, about that canon, uh, Menachem and Yoram, the Golan Globus. Oh, I have I had a quite an interesting meeting with them at one time, but was it Murphy's Law? Was that the name? Very good. It was Murphy's Law. It was this Charles Bronson thing that Sandy and I do at Canon. And it was just, and that was the, Perfect. That, that was like high school because you could work on eight films a month, and at that, I mean, if you and the alumni, Ron Bartlett was there, um, Richard King, he's gone on to do some other stuff. Absolutely, <laughs> Richard King was there, um, Jerry Ross, and it was. It was uh, uh, this documentary. I haven't seen it, but apparently someone made a documentary about just those wild canon years. They, they were kind of the uh, Golan and Globus were kind of the uh, precursors of Miramax and the Weinstein's. They right. were just these real impresarios, just these guys just making these movies. And to be a young person with the little experience I had, and at that point I, I had this one film. And this is when your resume says. You know, interest photography. Ex <laughs> 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 taxi driver. I don't think that was a, yeah, almost taxi driver. No, now, I mean, now you were, you, were you actually located at then the facility, or where were you cutting? So yeah, yeah, we were cutting there. Okay. And um, I remember getting a job on the elevator um, as a projectionist because I had run the projector in. Uh, back in Louisiana during dailies when I became this, uh, you know, I knew how to run a projector. And when I was at Canon, um, I got this job moonlighting as a projectionist. So I was the assistant sound editor, and then I would work at night as a projectionist. Um, And the head of projection was Michael Altman, Robert Altman's son. And um, I did that for a long time, John, and I, even after I'd gone to work at other places, I started working with Dodie Dorn and just started. I, I from Canon, I think I went to Director's Sound and I did some things there. Um, I would still get these calls from Canon 
Is this, you know, can you come and run this, you know, movie for us tonight? And I remember very clearly the time they called me and I said no. Like, I don't do that anymore. It's, like, you, you had made it, so to speak. <laughs> I had made it, that I was now at a point that I didn't have to, you know, and, and I was nervous. I was so, like, oh, my God, what have I done? I'm burning this bridge, and, you know, uh, but as luck, you know, well, I, it turned out I, I, I didn't need to go back. Right. Of course, you know, you, you, f- you took your first tentative steps, if you will, and, uh, <laughs> and got out there, and that... And you you mentioned Doty. Now I s- you worked on the Abyss. That's right. Mm. As yeah. did you. That film has uh, a dubious distinction of being the um, most consecutive Foley days in a row that I've ever worked on. Um, Forty-eight days in a row. Really? Yes. And uh, it was some of the hardest Foley I've ever done. I did it with Joseph Bella, uh, who was at Tosh Soundworks as... Uh, assisting Andrew then of course starting into Foley and I mean I was like I didn't need to work out that right. just just moving all that stuff and, and water and everything uh, and that how experienced were you I mean that was a big deal for you I mean you'd done films but I, that had to be one of the biggest it was it, it, it certainly was it was it was a big one then and and of course there was a lot of water in fact we did not start with you know typically we would like to start with real one they go to two or three right. I guess Doty needed you know um more of the water, underwater movement, et cetera, first. I'm going to guess for a tempo. Right. So, of course, then we kind of learn, like, well, what does work, what doesn't work, because, you know, water is very, draws all the frequencies out. So you have to right. figure out what's going to, going to get punched through. So that was interesting. And then we got a call that, well, James Cameron's going to come and play it back. Oh, I remember those days. And, you know, I'd heard all these stories about him. Uh, fortunately, my motorcycle was parked out front. And all of a sudden, the door knocks, and he comes in, and he goes, whose bike is that? He goes, that's mine. He goes, hey, great. So we sat down and talked for five minutes about motorcycles, then came into the playback. No problem. Now, mind you, before the playback, uh, I said to him, I really liked Aliens, the film, which I really did. Mm-hmm. I, lo- I love the sound effects in that. I said, I thought the Foley's pretty good, too. He goes, well, you know, we had to throw out 80% of it the first time I heard it. I'm thinking, oh, great. And now he's going to hear this. All right. But it, w- it worked out okay. Anyway, this is this is your story. So I just threw that one in mm-hmm. anyway. So. So you, you work with Dodie, and, and uh, who, uh, who else was on that film? That was... Um, it was Dodie and Blake. Blake. <laughs> and I have, actually, I got a wonderful job on that film. Um, I became the temp dub editor. Um, and this was all on MAG, which is a wonderful, wonderful job because while they had 40 people working on the final mix, I was keeping the t- patching and you know, with duct tape and <laughs> bailing wire, keeping the temp dub going. In other words, they'd have a screening uh, for, so, you know, the studio or some press or something, and they'd want to show this temp dub they had done. Well, it was my job. And no one, everyone else was too busy on the final mix, so they would just, I was, I was like the one-man temp dub department, which was a great, great job, because I was, I, I learned about conforming and the structure of, uh, stems and you know how the elements of a of a soundtrack go together how to patch it together and if Blake had come up with some really new uh sound design thing I would just go get it from him and throw it into the t- so in other words I was just playing with all the fun stuff you know the important things and I remember in that uh in that job as the temp editor they had a screening for David Anson of Newsweek and his wife in the little room five, I think it is, at Fox. And James Cameron, being James Cameron, gave me all of these instructions about how to play it. And when the sub does this, you want it to be at the volume to be at eight. And when this happens, you should turn it down a little. But make sure you really turn it up because I got to hear this line. And, and so here I was <laughs> with all these. You're a de facto mixer. Well, yeah, well, Cameron would just play with anything as long as he could. And at this point, the only thing to play with was, was the volume knob. <laughs> uh, you know, this was, anyway, the, and it was all, fil- so anyway, I go in the room, and David Anson and his wife are down in front. I'm in the back of the theater, and they just have this big rotary pot. And Gail Ann Hurd sits on the opposite side, of the, across on the other side of the pot. So the lights go down, the film comes up. I'm remembering, okay, this is eight, this is seven, this is nine, and I'm, 
you know, with my hand gripped to the knob. Well, white knuckled. <laughs> white knuckled, doing exactly what I've been told. And it's not long. It's like three minutes into the film. She reaches over and grabs my hand. So her hand is on top of my hand on the pot, and she's fighting me. Oh, no. <laughs> and now, <laughs> this is probably the most stressful. <laughs> do, do I let her do it? But no, he told me exactly what I wanted here. And so I'm turning it up, and she's turning it down, and we're struggling over the knob. That's crazy. She, she literally just reaches over and just grabs my hand. And I think it, I mean, I, it's hard to believe it went on for the whole movie, but for, I mean, it, it seemed like it did. And then after <laughs> we came out and Cameron walks over and, you know, how did it go? And she said, well, you know, Howell was just playing it, you know, so loud. And, and she said something along the lines of like, you know, these kids, you know, play everything. <laughs> right. and, and, and like, you know what a headbanger I am, right? Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, that was, uh, and then, but the, the other wonderful, wonderful thing, and this is just leading into the opportunities I've had or how I got to where I am, on that film, one of the picture editors uh, was Howard Smith. It was Conrad Buff, right, Conrad. Howard Smith, and uh, the main editor was a guy named Joel Goodman. Um, but Howard Smith um, was a wonderful man, a wonderful editor, uh, and he knew me again in this, as the temp dub guy, I mean, I was my, my my editing room was was basically next to the picture department, and so that film ended. I went on some holiday, and I get a call from Howard Smith that he's doing this film, Glen Gary, Glen Ross, and would I like to you know do the sound? And this was my first break as a supervisor, and uh upon you know i've I've been i've been away for a few years i've been back in la just a couple months now i actually had breakfast with howard last week i'm gonna have we're it's we're gonna do it again tomorrow um it's just the most wonderful well that's wonderful that you had this you know we stay in touch friendship for many many years this was 92 when uh glenn Glenn gary Gary came out well so then the story of glenn gary is they send me the script i read it and I have no idea what's going on. It's just these guys talking about leads and these leads. I have no idea what it is. And I go and um, that was Jamie Foley and Howard Smith. And and I, But I knew at the time, once we started working on it and I saw what the film was, I remember thinking I should quit after this because I will never again work on anything there's gonna be a very very long time before i work on another film this good and um that was done Uh, i was working at paramount by then and uh we mixed it at warner brothers with wayne artman and tom Dahl, and it was on that you you're a warner guy the um you know the lot it was a stages upstairs i think stage five that has that little uh bridge that goes over to transfer yes exactly John, during the mix of Glengarry, I would walk out on that bridge every day and just slump and think, they're going to fire me. <laughs> like, <laughs> they hate me. They hate my work. They, like, I'm just, I'm going to be fired. Like, the, the, the stress of that was incredible, uh, and, which it shouldn't have been because they're the wonderful people and it's a wonderful film. Only after the film was done, I was at home, and Jamie Foley called me. And said, um, Howell, I just want to thank you. That's the best experience I've had with sound on any of my, whatever it was, five or seven films he had done. He said, you should give a class on how to get what the director wants and still keep everybody happy. And I did several more films with him. But but at the time, I didn't. I mean, I was so insecure. That's interesting, but I think that's an abject lesson for everybody listening out there that, uh, you know, we all have doubts. Right. But, you know, your doubts, if I may speak for you, from the standpoint of like you wanted to make sure you did the best possible job you could and you cared. And that's makes all the difference because then you can inject your art, right. you know, and, and heart into the movie. And James Foley, the director, I saw that. I, I think the toughest part of the job in this and it is it's, I mean, it's a wonderful job in many ways. But the, but the absolute toughest thing for me always was. You were, su- you were expected to be 
passionate and thick-skinned at the same time, <laughs> and which is something I could never really square. I mean, I could never, in other words, being passionate, like, yes, I'm going to give this my all. I'm going to stay up all night. I'm going to, you know, drive to Mammoth to record, so, you know. I'm going to get the best possible thing I can. I'm going to pour everything. I'm going to really pour my heart into it. And when they don't like it, oh, that's no big deal. I don't care. <laughs> and to not be crushed. And, 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 and one of them has to give. In my experience, you either lose the passion and you just kind of start relying on, co you know, you use your sound library or, you know, you just, you, you quit being passionate. Or you, you, you become... The, you know, the, the being thick-skinned. You you become hardened and cynical, you know? And I never wanted to be... And I've left many times. I've gone back to Louisiana most recently. I've gone to Istanbul. And and uh, the main reason I've ever... I've left Hollywood was to not become cynical. Well, I know, knowing <laughs> you as I do, I know you're not cynical. So. And, and, and when, I was in a, when, I, when I was in Istanbul, people would ask me, are you homesick? Do you miss America? And I would say, no, I really don't. I, I don't. I don't miss Hollywood at all. But I do miss my friends. I miss the people. Right. Well, what did um, I say to you when I saw you there? <laughs> what? You were th it was the happiest I'd ever seen you yeah. in Istanbul. You also said, and I remember, John, you said, why would you ever leave here <laughs> <laughs> when we were drinking orange juice on the curb? Right. Um, so, and then once that began, I mean, so Glenn Gary was my first. Uh, we've talked about. Belazare, which got me to New York, The Abyss, which I guess got me in the Union and got, you know, was my first studio picture and got me a lot of experience, introduced me to Howard, which then got me to Glengarry Glenn Ross, which is my first film as a supervisor. I did a few more films with that director and then began, um, well, and then I can continue to draw a line. Um, well, I've got a question. Yeah. Was uh, October Sky the first time you worked with? Um, with uh, Joe. I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> yes. Yes, it was, because I can draw a line between Glenn Gary and that. And the Glenn Gary, again, the director was James Foley. Um, we did a film called Two Bits with Al Pacino. Did you work on that? I Gosh darn it, I don't remember. <laughs> I uh, hope you did. I I want to say I think I did, but I'd have to look it up, actually. Well, it's a forgotten film. Miramax bought it and recut it and um, dumped it. It played for like one week. And uh, it's an Al Pacino movie with Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio about a boy coming of age in Philadelphia one day in his life. I watched it again recently, and it's a really, really good film. I mean, it, 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 and it's written by Joseph Stefano, who wrote Psycho, believe it or not. But I did work on it, by the <laughs> way. Of course you did. <laughs> Two Bits was produced by Larry Franco. That's right. Two Bits That's was produced right. by Larry Franco. And it was Larry Franco who introduced me to Joe Johnston on October Sky. Um, there have been others. Um, in terms, I'm trying to say how I've gotten work. Uh, in this case, you know, I've said there was a picture editor. Well, there was a guy in a sandwich shop. <laughs> there was Howard Smith. Got me Glenn Gary. There was Larry Franco introduced me to uh, Joe Johnston, and we did October Sky, and I've done five movies with him. With Joe Johnston, right? Right. The the last with being Joe Johnston. With Joe Johnston, the last being Captain America. Um, I ended up doing some Ivan Reitman films uh, when I, I was working at Weddington, and uh, there was an assistant editor, in uh, a, an assistant picture editor, named Holly Sachi. On the on six days, seven nights, or some Ivan Reitman film, and she called me and said, "Hey, Howell, they're looking for a sound guy on this movie I'm working on. You should meet him." And that was Girl Interrupted, which introduced me to James Mangold. Wow! Um, so there was an assistant. Um, it is true. I mean, it's kind of a cliche, but you should be nice to everyone in Hollywood. Because you really don't know. Because the the PA who's bringing you coffee may be an executive next year. <laughs> that that sir, that has happened. Indeed, it yeah. has. And I, yeah. I, yeah, be nice. The the people you see on the way up are the same ones you see on the way down. So I have a question for you. Is oh, there I've... anyone in this town, John, who doesn't like you? 
Oh, tell me there's somebody. I'm sure. I know. I'm tell sure me there's, there's one person. I'm sure. I would love to. I, this would be fascinating because I can't imagine it. I'm sure there's. But I have to just think for like cosmic balance or karma. There has to be some guy who says that John Rush. I hate that SOB. <laughs> I, I I don't know that hate. That's a kind of a strong word, but I'm sure. I'll never work with that guy again. That yeah. guy is such a fraud. I, I'm sure I've had a couple that have. Uh, been no, I can't imagine anybody. You, know, you and you you are the master. I mean, you you work very very hard. You do excellent work but you you do understand uh it is all about relationships again and i'm just going to interject this too real quick then we'll go i want to go back to you because uh the working hard is as you say it's about relationships and of course i've got shelly roden and scott curtis with me now up at uh, up north and that makes all the difference but i want to ask you a question about green mile yeah because uh now, did you just do sound effects editing on that? Or yeah, yeah. Mangini okay. supervised it. Okay. And um, I was just a, a worker bee on that. But it has, in all my travels, and I, I think I've told Mark Mangini this, but in Europe, in Ukraine, Russia, anywhere I've ever gone, when people look at my IDP, IMDb page, you worked on Green Mile? <laughs> That makes a bigger impression than anything. And um, that is actually uh, an example of taking the craft and your craft. Because Mangini tells a story, which I have told, about how before they struck the set, we got you access to walk on that, I mean, on the soundstage where they filmed the Green Mile, the death row, that you could do the Foley. And they did that whole thing with the video monitor and the remote miking and all of that. And that, correct me if I'm wrong, and, and it doesn't matter if you correct me, I'm still going to tell the story the same way. But Mangini, I remember the story was that the first day they do it, and they say, and you're watching the first scene, okay, here's Tom Hanks, he walks and turns, stops at the door and turns. And you just stood in place and did it. And Mark says, well, no, you walk. You can, like, really, you're not in a pit, and you're not, you, you've got walk. And the next one, you walked like five feet. Like, no, no, really, walk. You yeah. could really go. Yeah, that, that's that's actually uh, true. I mean, the— uh, It must have been hard to break that. Well, I, it was—once I got it, which took about like two takes, <laughs> uh, there's a dimensionality that can come in because, right. you know, as you just said, the Foley stage, typically it's, it's a very small area you're working in. So you're confining yourself to that. So you're working on and off the microphone in a way you're helping psychoacoustically to— you know, create more of a, a reality, but there, the reality was there. All I had to right. do is literally walk within the context of the space. So, right. so right. So, if uh, Hanks is walking down the Green Mile in a long shot coming up to a close-up, I would be about twenty f feet away from the right. monitor and walk up to the to the microphone. And um, that was the stars were in alignment on that one. I've never had really an experience like that before or since. And uh, I have, I have enormous, profound respect and admiration for Mark Mangini and for his work and I was overseas I was in Turkey when he was nominated right and um, I sent him an email and I said uh, the world makes a little more sense today than it did yesterday because <laughs> it just made no sense to me that he had gone so long and I was so thrilled to see him to see him win um, because and to any of your listeners, you know, Mark has a a wonderful website and blog where he talks about sound. I don't know if you've seen. He has um, yeah, I forget writes the, about the sound. I think it's markmangini.com. Oh, it? Okay, I mean, I think I think so. And he talks about sound and books and uh, no, he is a uh, he's an inspiration. Well, yeah, I was, I was lucky to work with him on 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 the f also phenomenon. A John Travolta movie, um, and, oh, and of course uh, Fifth Element. We worked on Fifth Element right. together, and of course he won the Oscar for Mad Max. That's right. You know, which uh, I'm not sure how many times he was nominated. But it was I know more than once. Let's right. See if I can look that up real quick while we're we're talking. Um, yeah, he's uh, he's had 13 nominations. Uh, he was nominated for uh, Fifth Element, Aladdin. Star Trek Four, I worked on the latter two, uh, and then some BAFTAs. He won the BAFTA for M Mad Max. Anyway, you know, I guess I guess what's interesting when you're saying this, what strikes me is 
you know, Mark Mangini is like this, oh my God, person yet, you know, you work with him in a way that, you know, you could do your best work. So it, it is about the people. You know? Right. There was, uh, I'm sorry, there were, I, I don't know why this stuck in my mind, but many, many years ago on like the, t- the Today Show or something, um, they were interviewing Wilford Brimley. Great character the, actor. And uh, yeah, the oatmeal guy. Great character actor. And I remember I, I, this stuck in my mind because the uh, it's probably Jane Pauley or something. They asked, they said, you know, what's your favorite film of all the films you worked on? And he said, well, Tender Mercies. He said they were really nice. They were nice people to work with. And she said, um, oh, is that how you judge it by the, you know, the the crew, the, the, your co, the production, the people you work with? And he says, yeah, I don't watch any of them. <laughs> she says, really? You've never? He says, no, I don't watch any of my movies. So, and, I, and, and it did stick with me because you don't remember. And you don't, and to be honest, we can talk about, like I can go on and on about Glengarry and what a wonderful script it was, but that one sticks. But you know this, John. I just asked you about two bits. Did I work on that? Oh, yeah, I did. <laughs> you don't remember. And you see, you don't remember the films. You remember the people. Right. And when Wilfred Brimley is out there, he says, well, my favorite, of all the films I've done, my favorite is Tender Mercies because I liked the people I worked with. That's absolutely right. And I would, I would not want to be a person who remembered, like, oh, yes, the, you know, that was a great mix, and I don't know who my assistant was. Right. You know, th- those are the people. Right, yeah. so, so putting words in your mouth, then, you know, it's, as you say, it's about the people, and, and that's... I guess for our listeners, I think especially the younger people who want to get into the business, you know, support each other. You know, they're, they're not your competition. They're your, you know, they're the people you want to work with as uh, creatively. And let, let me say this, in, I mean, expand on that in another way. You can talk about the people versus the product, but I would also like to talk about the people versus the technology, which is all the talk. And we were very fortunate in that we began... In the Stone in, Age. In, in, in the Stone Age, but... When I when we when I began cutting on a moviola, nobody talked about gear. There was just nothing to talk about. You couldn't say, "Oh, I got a new light bulb for my moviola." I mean, the equipment had been around since the '30s, and you'd come. Nobody talked about equipment. You talked about movies you'd seen or a girl you were dating, or you know, you talked about things. Now. You go into an editing room, you go to a stage, it's all about these plugins and those plugins and, you know, Apple's coming out with this new and Digi's coming out with that. Then, and I, I, I don't like that because I, I think there, there, there's too much focus on the gear. And I, and I, but I want to expand this thing about people and relationships. I was teaching, I was doing a workshop in Istanbul and um, uh, afterward the student raised his hand and he says, you know, I'm making my student film. I don't have a lot of money. Um, should I use, you know, I don't have a lot of money. I want to get good dialogue. Should I use a condenser microphone? Like, what's the cheap, you know, like, what mic can I use? To s- His ba- basic question was, what mic can I use? Because I don't have any budget. And I was kind of hard on him. I, I feel guilty. But I said, my response was, I said, that's not a technical question. It's a political question. <laughs> And because he lost me when he said, I don't have any money, blah, blah, blah. Because I, 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 I'm not interested in hearing that. And there is this attitude. And I mean, I, 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 there's this attitude like, if I can do it cheaper, you know, that's the goal. You know, that'll make the producer happy or whatever. You know, I've got this budget. You know, how can I do it? And what I told this young person, and I would tell anyone listening, you don't want to be the person. You don't want to be the man or woman who says, I can do it for less. Um, as an aside, I, I worked with a producer in Louisiana when I was building that studio. and This guy had made lots of no-budget movies, and he would come out here to L.A., and he would have these meetings at studios, and he'd come back to Louisiana, and he'd say, oh, yeah, I had this meeting at Warner Brothers, Sony, and, you know, I told him I can do a whole feature for $500,000. And I said, you know, those guys left that meeting, the L.A. people, and they thought, okay, when we're ready to make a $500,000 movie, we know the guy to call. (laughs) He's our $500,000 guy. And I remember the same guy years later, 
wanted to do something, was trying to put together this $20 million film and wanted me to help him, you know, and use my experience and name. And I just said, why would anyone give you $20 million? You've just, you know, spent the last 10 years bragging about how you can do it for next to nothing. Good point. And my point to this, to this student was, the guy who wanted the cheap microphone, is don't ever, ever <laughs> say, you know, what's the cheapest I can do it? And ultimately, I said, if, if you really want to make, you know, if you're making your student film and you want to have good sound, it's not about a microphone. It's about people. And, and what you need to do is care about sound. And if you don't care about sound, it's just never been your thing, find someone who does and be really nice to him. <laughs> no, and you could look at, and, and, and that's where you go back. And you can look at David Lynch and Alan Splett. Right. That's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Right. And I would never, I would never, I would hope that if I asked David Lynch what microphone did Alan Splett use, I would hope he would slap me. Right. Because <laughs> it is not the microphone. It was Alan Splett. And you need to find those people. And that, that's all I can say. And to any of it, it's about these people. It's about these. And if you want to have good sound, you know. Well, I, I you know, and I think. Somebody had asked me once, kind of along the same lines, well, you know, what about the cost factor? I said, well, look, it's about the people, really, because, I mean, what would you rather do? Would you rather have the finest equipped operating room in the world, neurologically, and have some surgeons that are okay, right. or the finest surgeons in the world right. in a really well-equipped operating theater, but it's not right. necessarily, you know, complete top line? I know what I do, right. you know? I want the best people, the people that really care and know what they're doing. Right, you know, and uh, as a quick aside too, there's been an interesting thing happening with uh, with Foley, where you know a, because the infrastructure is not what it used to be. Right. When I was uh, there, when the dinosaurs were roaming, you know, you could not have a Foley stage per se because you just needed an incredible amount of money. Right. Now you know, with the digital technology, you can start a Foley stage for I don't know maybe five ten grand. Right, you know, but then it begs the question. How good is it going to be? And then right. hope. Well, so not to get off on a tangent. Um, there, was, I was, there was an editor. I won't say the editor's name because they're still around. But another editor, a, a mutual friend, uh, told me. He said, "Well, how the producers really love editor X because they're a one-man band. They can do dialogue. They can do ADR. They can do the whole thing by themselves. Producers love this editor because that editor is a one-man band." And my response was, have you ever listened to a one-man band? <laughs> can I steal that? I love that. No, it's just like, okay, but you know, you can't really dance to it. <laughs> you don't want to hear it in your car. I mean, no. I think I've seen that, the, the, the uh, YouTube video of the guy with like, you know, the right. symbol on it's his like head that, and yeah. you know, playing all the instruments. That, that's, that's neat. And? Well, well, you know, then along, well, not quite. As a quick aside, what is your favorite movie that you worked on? Is there one in particular or is it just kind of? You just, you know. Well, what you was want it? the Wilfred Brimley answer or the one I'm most proud of? Because I'm not let's, really... Let's go, let's go with the one you're most proud of. Because that... Which would be Glengarry? It would be... It'd be hard to beat Glengarry. It, 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 okay. it would be between Glengarry and October Sky. Yeah. I mean, October Sky was just... Well, I'm biased. A beautiful... Right. I didn't work on Glengarry. <laughs> you uh, should have. Well, <laughs> no worries. But I, I absolutely loved... Loved October Skies, and of course it was called the Rocket Boys. That's right. When you and I working on it, or that is you had me work on it. It was a beautiful picture. I I want to tell you, it was a beautiful, beautiful film, and uh, I think it still is. Okay, we're gonna now put you in the time machine, uh -oh. and we're gonna go back, and we're gonna if you could tell yourself something that you didn't know back when you were starting that you know now, what would uh, that piece of advice be, if anything? That is an excellent question. Um, I really, I don't know, because w when I look back on it, and I've done, you know, what seemed, <laughs> I would probably just say worry less. I, I know what I would say. I know what I would say to myself is um, be nicer to people. 
Really? That's, I've never experienced you not being nice to people. Well, that's because you're you. Like I said, I, that's why I need to meet the guy. I need to meet the guy that doesn't like John Resch <laughs> and just take notes because, no, no, because I've been, um, no, I can be very hard on people and uh, the, it's nothing more or less than the relationships. Okay. Because the, the and the people, and to, again, to young people listening, whatever you want to do, if you want to do sound, if you want to produce, if you want to write, um, although writing's a little more solitary, but even, no, anything, anything you want to do, you um, find the people that sync with you, that, you know, and just be really, really nice to them. Right. Um, that would have been, in, in terms of, you know, the, Things I made, you know, the, the decision I made that I have made many times, the decisions to leave here, um, I don't regret because I kept me from being cynical. I always came back with fresh ears and a fresh attitude. Um, I would not have. I, I, let me and let me expand on that because this goes to advice. This is something I. This is not something I would change, but it's probably the most important advice I would give to young people of all the things I've said. If you want to be successful in Hollywood based on my experience, let's say you're from Indiana and you're listening to Vicki Sampson tonight. Um, to anyone, or even if you're from California, if you want to work in Hollywood, I would say come to Hollywood uh, for six months to a year. And in that six months to a year, you need to visit two or three lots. I mean, get inside the studio gate you need to learn enough about how it works that you know what Foley is, you know what a pre-dove is, you know what ADR is, you know what an agent does, you know what a post you, you, I mean, just kind of learn the beginning of the ropes. Work if you can, work for free if necessary, but do any kind of, just, just learn as much as you can, six months to a year, year and a half max, and then leave. <laughs> this is my advice. Go away. And, and then leave. Now, why? Just trust me on this. Okay. <laughs> Based on my experience. Go back home. Work for your dad's insurance company. Do something. Wait table. Just Now, don't burn bridges. And don't, don't say, oh, I hate that place. I'm never going back. Stay in touch with your people. You know. um, because it will give you... And uh, this is based on my experience. And if you... Ha uh, and there's a... There's a, pre there's a prerequisite here that you have something on the ball. You have some talent. Right. <laughs> okay, right. that you're that you good at what you do. Uh, if not, I can't help you. You should, well, it kind of it holds true in either case because if you're not very good at it, you should go to work for your dad's insurance company and keep working for your dad's insurance company. But even if you're good at it, even if you're good at it, just the perspective and the and, and it just keeps you from getting too distorted too quickly and, and all i can say to anybody is that every time i left and i never really left because out of anger i hated here you know I'm, I'm never coming back but every time i i left to go back to louisiana i came back believe it or not i came back at a higher level wow and i was doing had more responsibility and was and i don't know why this was and it was counterintuitive to me i mean i didn't because i thought any other industry like if you were working like my God, if you were working for Amazon or Apple, I can't imagine you going away and coming back. Not, know, not, you, high, you, not you, a higher rank, right? No, you, you would be, you'd, you'd have to start over. You'd be at you the bottom of the ladder. In the again. shipping department, right? And maybe I'm wrong, and maybe the industry has changed, but that is something that would be my advice All because, right. and and it helps you if you're in the creative side of it, as we are, John. It helps you. Uh, just stay fresh and it to not be cynical and to, now having said all this and i hope you won't take this i don't think it applies to you and what you do <laughs> and i think that your story and what you do um because it's so specific right right okay. i agree i don't think i i, I don't think it's like really an example <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know that anyone can do what you do, but just because it, it's a very, very specific thing. I'm talking about the broader, those of us who aren't you. I mean, those of us who are just 
schlubs and <laughs> doing come our on. come on no 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 pro, you know those of us who are work whatever it is right those of us who are working on projects that go anywhere from three to nine months and time off between jumping from project to project i mean just freelance film professionals right okay and it's a balance you may leave go away for a week and then you know come right back i don't know but just be prepared to step away from it and clear your head and 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 not be afraid and i remember let me this is important advice i'm about to tell you because it goes back to larry franco i was i'd done several movies for jamie foley the director of glengarry Glen ross and his next movie, I was working at Weddington, a sound company you and I know well at the time. And his he, Jamie's next movie was The Chamber, the uh, right the about John the Grisham thing, right. John Grisham thing. And I'd done all of his movies, so here I am talking to the producers about it and making my deal. And I was asking for what I at the time was in an, a, a lot of money, too much money. I was asking him, well, it's not, I was asking for a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And everyone at Weddington, all my coworkers, like, Howell, what are you doing? You know, you don't have any Oscars. You haven't done, you know, you shouldn't, you should just, they're paying you good money. You shouldn't be difficult. You should just agree to do this. And they had kind of worn me down. They'd kind of convinced me not to. But before I made my decision, I called Larry Franco. And I left a message for him to call me back. While I was waiting for Larry to call me back, some of my coworkers say, just do this job. Shut up. You know, Get off your high horse. Just do the movie. It's a big job. You'll make a lot of money. Just do it. But I'd kind of gotten burned out on this director. Uh, I'll tell you how burned out. On, on the film before, that film Two Bits, we were doing ADR with Alec Baldwin. And we're in the ADR studio. And about halfway through the session, Jamie and I were sitting on separate couches. Halfway through the session, Alec Baldwin says, Jamie and Howell are like an old married couple. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Me and the director. Because, <laughs> again, my relationships with these people are all intense, and I really like these people. Anyway, so I would call Larry Franco to ask his advice. They wear me down. The, my coworkers, they just accept it. And so I called the producer, a guy named Rick Kidney. Turned out he was out of the office, so I left a message for him, so now I'm waiting for either one. As luck would have it, Larry Franco called me back first, and I told him what was going on. He says, Howell, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to hide behind the money. (laughs) He says, I did that once. There was a certain actor I didn't want to work with, and I asked for $750,000, and you can't do that. And Larry said, when, when Rick Kidney calls you back, you tell him it's not about the money. You just don't want to work with Jamie anymore. And John, it was, wow. wow. And, but I have to tell you, it was like clear water. It made so much sense to me. And I would like to sound like I was really tough, but well, Rick Kidney did call me back. And I said, Rick, it's uh, not about the money. I just don't want to work with Jamie anymore. <laughs> I don't think I cried or anything, but I said, I said, it's not about the money. I don't want to work. And he said, I know what you mean. No kidding. And he says, I understand. And, you know, he says, how do you want me to tell him? And I said, I didn't expect that. I said, well, tell him. And he says, all right, I'll take care of it. And I understand that he was really upset. Who did it? But I survived is the important thing. Right. I walked away from this big, which is like the next big obvious step in my career. And I got another job and I didn't, I, and I did, and Larry and Larry had respect for me. We did, you know, I talked to Larry this week. Um, so that would also be my advice to any young person. This is, this is all good stuff. Well, or it's crazy stuff because I would also say to a young person, there's going to come a point in your career where it's going to be the next obvious thing and it's not going to feel quite right. Walk away. Just walk away. Yeah. Just, to, just to teach yourself that you're, you'll survive. And all of these things, I think, are just you know, to try and keep you, you know, true to yourself and 
And, and, and it was beautiful the way Larry said it. You, you can't hide behind. You're trying to hide behind the money, and you shouldn't do that. You should just tell them it's not about the money. I don't want to work. And that was, uh, and, and man, I, you know, I went home a wreck. I mean, I didn't know how I was going to you know, pay my mortgage. But I, I survived. You, you did survive. Not only survived, you're <coughs> still in the business. Uh, and now, and with a beautiful wife now. Mm-hmm. You've been married to, what, a couple years? Yep. Yeah. And, uh, I, well, I think we'll, we'll come to the moment now. Uh, I, I'm going to have to say two things. One, we'll have to invite you back at some point because we have to talk about, but not now, about the building of the studio back east. But So we'll tease the audience with that, but also say, too, we're very grateful that you're here, uh, Hal. And... Uh, the website, sometimes people actually ask questions. They'll send them into the website. So if there are any for you, may we ask them of you? Sure. And, okay. And, uh, again, uh, certainly check out uh, Hal on IMDb. And um, I just want to say for me to you, I really appreciate you taking time to do this because uh, you're one of the best and nicest people I know. And th- thank God you've been nice to me. That's all I can say from what you've been telling me. Well, no, if I could, <laughs> if I can come and hang out with John Resch for an hour, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Anything's worth it. <laughs> even 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 horrible traffic on the one ten. So <laughs> I was in a terrible mood. To the audience, I was in a very cranky mood. There was a to, it was a horrible drive to get up here, and it was it was worth it. Well, so. again, thank you, Hal. Thank All righty. Okay. Take care. All right. Thanks for tuning into another episode of the Right Scuff. We hope you enjoyed this one. If you liked it, be sure to subscribe. If you need more information, go ahead and check out our website, therightscuff.com. You can visit our YouTube channel where we do our prop of the week. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in our next episode.